could be a long stand. Uh, well, good morning and happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's right. It's great to be here with you, to get to worship with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 20. We are going to continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke, and we're just going to pick up the next passage. Now, if you're someone who's with us uh, on Sundays or you've been following along via the podcast, uh, we're going to start in verse 9 of Luke chapter 20, and you might say to yourself, hold on, we skipped a couple passages. Well, that's because we worked with two in a row, sort of two different chunks at our Good Friday service at the end of Luke 19 and the first eight verses of Luke chapter 20. So now we're on to Luke 20 uh, verse 9, which is an incredible Easter passage that we wouldn't typically put into the Easter passage category. But I think that will make sense as we work our way through this this morning. Uh, Before we get started, let's pray and then we'll look at God's word together. God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for the chance to come together, God, and just to declare your greatness and your glory, to sing about your resurrection, to just sort of sit and celebrate and revel in the life that we have because Jesus didn't stay dead. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. I pray that your spirit would be here, encourage us, challenge us, convict us, open our hearts and minds and eyes to the truth of your word. Help us to see and savor Jesus, our resurrected Savior, we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, I don't, well, yeah, let's just do a show of hands. Um, someone comes to you, could be your spouse, might be a friend, could be mom or dad, and they say, hey, I've got good news and bad news. How many people want the bad news first? How many people want the good news first? I don't know what that says. Like, you want the good news first so that you can just stew on the bad news for the rest of the day? Yeah, someone's shaking their head like, that's exactly what I want. I'm a bad news first kind of person, especially if the good news provides some sort of antidote to the bad news. We're going to work good news, bad news this morning, but we're going to start bad news so that we can end good news because I don't want you to go away and stew over the bad. I want you to go away and celebrate the good. Does that work? Let me give you a little bit of brief context before we read this passage from Luke chapter 20. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. He's in the temple and he's got a crowd of people that are around him. Some of them are his followers. Others are just sort of like curious supporters or spectators of his. But he's also got some detractors in the crowd. Those would be religious leaders, Pharisees, priests, scribes, elders that work there in the temple. And those people are upset that Jesus is teaching in a way that makes it seem as though he's saying that what happens at the temple, like all the sacrifices and sort of the religious life that centers there in the temple, it seems like he's saying that's irrelevant or it's going to be no longer necessary. And so Jesus launches into this parable that's directed to the whole group, but specifically to those individuals those priests and scribes and elders who are somewhat skeptical and who we've learned 
just previously at the start of Luke 20, actually are looking for a way to kill Jesus. And so he launches into this parable. It starts in verse nine of Luke chapter 20. It says this. Now he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him, sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, this must never happen. But he looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour, because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. A pretty straightforward parable. Not all of Jesus' parables are that way. But the figures in the parable are pretty clear. There's a vineyard owner, that's God. There are tenant farmers, those are the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, the Pharisees. But you could expand that circle even to humanity more generally. The son, lowercase s, is Jesus, the son, capital S. And the vineyard, you could sort of work your way out in concentric circles. In the immediate context, the vineyard represents the temple there in Jerusalem where Jesus is teaching, but you could expand that outward to Jerusalem. You could even expand that outward more holistically to the whole world. And a word about parables in general before we dive into this. Parables give us one big truth, but not all available truth. When Jesus chose to teach in a parable, he did so in order to make a specific point. This means that Jesus did not give a single parable in order to state every single truth about all things in general or even all the truth available on one particular topic. In order to see the full picture in any parable, we have to think about all of scripture and all of Jesus's ministry as a whole. That helps us keep a parable in focus. And so as we work through this this morning, we're gonna zoom out at times, see the big picture as we look at the specific one that Jesus painted. The main point this morning is this. That the son, that's a capital S, was sent and was killed, but he is not dead. Amen? Amen. We're just going to kind of go through this by characters. We're going to start by looking at these tenant farmers. The tenant farmers give us the bad news here. The first piece of bad news is this. It's that sin makes us thieves. Now, it doesn't mean that we all steal things. Sin makes us thieves in that we are glory thieves, specifically. The farmers want to take what is rightfully the vineyard vineyard owners, and they want to make it theirs. 
That's the essence of sin. Humanity has been doing that since the very beginning. We take that which was God's and we try to make it our own. God is to be glorified in the world that he created. We would rather have that glory for ourselves. The Bible gives some very early specific pictures about the reality of sin. And then those specific pictures ring true throughout the whole of scripture and are still true today. And I wanna trace some of those as we look at these farmers. In Genesis chapter 11, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. We're told that the people that lived then said this, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Now, when God created humanity, placed Adam and Eve in the garden, the entire purpose of their existence was to enjoy what God had created and glorify him with it. You get not very many chapters down the road and humanity is saying, let's take what God has given us and make a name for ourselves. That's what these farmers want to do. They want to steal that which is the vineyard owner's the fruit of what he has planted. That's the essence of sin. We wanna take the fruit of all the good things that God has given us and use it for ourselves. Steal it, make it our own, warp it and twist it into something different. That's not it because sin also makes us blind. Heart blind. The wildest part of this entire parable that Jesus lays out so perfectly, is how the tenant farmers think this whole deal is going to work. Let's kill the son, then the inheritance will be ours. In what world is that how that would play out? Hey, there's a really wealthy guy who owns all this space, and he sent his son. Like, they literally huddled up in the parable and decided, if we kill him, The father will think to himself, I guess I should give his murderers all of my inheritance. That's a picture of how blind sin really makes us. We're stealing his glory with hearts that are completely blind. Maybe if I hoard all this money, God will lavish upon me the riches of his kindness. Maybe if I accumulate all of this power, God's power will work through me in my life. Maybe if enough people love and respect me, then God will like and respect me. Maybe if I achieve and accomplish enough, God will be impressed with me like everyone else is. Those are offenses to his grace, to his goodness. We're glory thieves, stealing that which was supposed to be his, and we're so completely heart blind that we think that in the process of stealing that which is supposed to be his, he's somehow going to honor us in return. Again, the early portions of scripture lay this groundwork for us, this time right before the flood. We're told that when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human heart was nothing but evil all the time, he was deeply grieved. Look, maybe verbally we would never say some of the examples that I gave. Well, if I just hoard all this money, God will definitely lavish his goodness on me. Like Maybe we would never say that. 
Maybe we would never vocalize that, but sin makes us so heart blind that those realities are what silently run beneath the surface of our lives. Everything is warped, everything distorted, disrupted, a bit delusional because of the presence of sin, but it doesn't end there for these tenant farmers. There's one more piece of bad news here, and that's that sin makes us dead, spiritually dead. The parable portion of the passage ends and the people are in a mild uproar. The parable ends in verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus asks this rhetorical question. Well, he will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. And the people listening there respond, well, that, that could never happen. And then Jesus responds with a quote from the Old Testament. It actually comes from Psalm 118. He says, what's the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Then Jesus offers some interpretation to that. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whoever it falls, it will shatter them. Jesus is talking about himself there. He's the one that was rejected and has become the cornerstone. And we'll get to looking at him in a moment. But for now, just keep thinking about the farmers. Jesus is saying, look, you stumble over that stone. You stumble over me. You will be broken. That stone falls on you and you will be crushed. Sin makes us dead. It's been that way since the very beginning. Genesis 2, God says to Adam and Eve, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. And here's the thing about our heart blindness in the middle of this. We're convinced that isn't the case. How do Adam and Eve respond? Is that what God said? Uh, I'm not 100% sure. So the serpent interprets for them. You won't die. God knows that when you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Glory thieves who are heart blind and dead. That's the reality of sin. And Jesus is using this parable and looking at everybody in the temple and he's saying, look, even though the owner of the vineyard sent his son, if you reject the son, you are in trouble. You will be broken to pieces, shattered. And in our glory-stealing, heart-blind, death-inducing state, we're able to convince ourselves that sin isn't really a very big deal. But Jesus' point in all of this is that sin is a real problem, that it is a big deal. Jesus is confronting the fact that even the religious leaders of his day, maybe even particularly the religious leaders of his day, are not immune to its effects. Sin and its impacts aren't something that are just out there. Like it's easy for us in our world today to think that sin just like exists out there in the world and its impacts are devastating. The Bible's constant refrain is that sin and its effects primarily are something that are in here. All of this is about the posture and the attitude of the farmers. It's a heart issue. Tim Keller, in his book, Hope in Times of Fear, which is about 
the beauty and the power of the resurrection says this, the human dilemma from time immemorial has not only been about how to control nature out there, but the far more difficult challenge, how to control nature in here. That is the many enigmas and problems of human nature itself. We hunger for meaning and purpose. We find that things that we thought would bring us satisfaction do not. We are shocked at the evil things that other human beings and we ourselves are capable of doing. The greatest threat to our hope for a better world is not the natural environment, but the various evils that continually spring from the human heart. There's the bad news. Sin is a big deal. And it's a big deal not just sort of intellectually in the world around us. It is a big deal personally inside each and every one of us. And so before we spring to the good news solution, I want to work back through the parable this time and focus on the owner. God. One of the things that jumps off the page when you read the parable, when you hear what Jesus is saying, is that God, the vineyard owner, is patient and persistent. For most people, the roughing up of the first servant would have been enough. It's striking that the vineyard owner is patient despite the farmer's actions. The vineyard owner is a picture of God patient with the sin of his people. To go back to the very beginning, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Death was the guarantee, and it didn't come immediately. They walked out of the garden alive. That is God's patience. Pick your spot in the Old Testament. God is patient. From about page three to the start of your New Testament is one long story about the patience of God with his people. In fact, the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word that's used to talk about the patience of God is that he is long-suffering. That's the image of God's patience with the sin of humanity. Psalm eighty-six, fifteen says, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, long-suffering, abounding in faithful love. But his patience is not an idle sort of patience. It's active. It isn't just that the vineyard owner in the parable sits around and waits. He's not like us sitting at a red light until it turns green. Like, how long can I take it? There are no other cars around here. Am I just supposed to wait? I guess I'll just sit. We're helpless, but hopeful. That's us and our patience. In his patience, he is active, persistent in pursuing the fruit of his vineyard. He keeps sending servants to the farmers. It almost doesn't even make sense. God is persistent in that same way. His patience doesn't mean that he's sitting around just wishing and hoping that things would kind of sort themselves out. God's patience is an active patience. It's a persistence. He's persistent in the pursuit of the glory that is his. He's persistent in pursuit of his people despite their sin. He is persistent in the pursuit of the fulfillment of his plans and his purposes. That's the other truth about God. When we step back away from the parable and we look at it in the context of the larger story of what God is doing, we're reminded that God's plan is perfect. The picture in the parable is that the owner of the vineyard seems to kind of look around after the loss of his third servant and says, I don't know what else to do. I suppose I'll send my son and perhaps they'll treat him a little bit better. 
The reality in Scripture is that the Son has always been the plan. God sent Moses and prophets, sent John the Baptist, but none of them were the culmination of the plan. They were pieces of his patient persistence. That's the message that Jesus is sending to the religious leaders. God sent Moses. He was ignored. God sent the prophets. You killed them. God sent John the Baptist. You rejected him. And now he has sent the son. And the son is not a last resort. He's not a backup plan. He's not God sort of frustrated throwing his hands up in the air with like a Hail Mary sort of reaction. Ah, I hope this works. The son has always been the plan. The picture is not God wringing his hands, trying to figure out what to do with the sin of humanity. The plan is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in heaven from all of eternity with the plan that the Son would come. And all of the Old Testament is God saying, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. And then the New Testament is God screaming, now. Now is the time. And just as the earliest portions of scripture give us pictures of the reality of sin, so too do they give us the foundation of God's plan to redeem humanity from sin. In the outflow of the fall there in the garden in Genesis chapter three, God looks at Satan, the serpent, and says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head. You will bruise his heel. The son of the woman is coming and throughout all of the Old Testament, you're supposed to be asking yourself the question, is this the son, David? Is this the son, Solomon? Is this the son? Is this the son, this prophet, this person, this king? Genesis 3.15 promises it, and the various portions of the Old Testament point forward to it. The prophets foretold it. John the Baptist ushers it in, and then Jesus delivers it at the right time in exactly the right way, because God's plan is perfect. And then we get to the Son. There's one aspect of Easter that I always want to be sure to hit every year, and that's that our celebration of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a celebration of historical reality. As we turn our attention to the Son in the parable, we aren't listening to a mythical or legendary figure offer a fictional story with some moralizing point. We're hearing the words of a flesh and blood person, Jesus of Nazareth, who really lived really did the things that the Gospels recount. He really died by crucifixion at the hands of Pontius Pilate. He was really buried and the tomb was really empty. If these events we celebrate at Easter are legends or just religious stories, then they may help us feel better about ourselves, but they offer us no true power, but they are not. These are historical truths, facts that have been researched and debated and studied for over 2,000 years now. Facts that even Christianity's fiercest opponents have often struggled to disprove. And the good news of Easter is that the son was sent and was killed, but he is not dead. That's where the parable ends. Maybe if I send my son, they'll treat him better. And the farmers get together and they say, let's kill him and get the inheritance. And the parable ends with a dead son. What happened to Jesus? 
When our glory-stealing, heart-blind, death-inducing sin, humanity saw the Son and killed him, crucified him on the cross, buried him in a tomb. It was the sin of all humanity that ends up killing Jesus. But it's the religious leaders that lead that charge. Why? Because they think maintaining their power and control necessitates that this Jesus of Nazareth be silenced. Keeping what they think is their inheritance requires eliminating the son. We should also point out, though, that the death of the son is not a surprise to the father. The death of the son is not a surprise to God. It was always part of the perfect plan. But the son is not dead, and the resurrection of the son was not a surprise. The resurrection of the son was always part of the plan. When the son is killed, Jesus crucified on a cross, buried in the tomb, God is not in heaven looking down saying, God, I really hope this works. God is in heaven for a couple of days saying to himself, wait until they see what happens because the son is not staying dead. That's where we deviate from the parable. Parables are word pictures that give specific truth, but not all truth. And we have to hold everything together. And in doing so, we see how the parable gave part of the picture, but not the full, glorious, beautiful reality. Jesus is greater than the son in the story. In the parable, the son is killed and that's the end. But in reality, Jesus, the son, is killed and it is just the beginning. Jesus is crucified, lays in a tomb for three days, And then just like Genesis said he would, he crushes the head of the serpent as he rises from the grave and he walks out. He was bruised, no question, by the reality of sin and yet he trampled on sin and death on his way out of the tomb. Amen? That is good, good news. Why? Because a dead religious man does us no ultimate good. But a crucified and risen savior? Well, a crucified and risen savior forgives our sin triumphs over our sin and then most gloriously is living and active and present with us and that is the great hope of the gospel now we're alive not dead now our hearts see they aren't blind now we give glory rather than steal it that is the great beauty of the gospel and we do all of it in the presence of a living and ruling and reigning savior the son jesus christ Tim Keller, again, says this, perhaps the most ordinary daily benefit of the resurrection is this. To follow not a dead, revered teacher, but rather a risen Lord is to have him with us. Because of the resurrection, he is not a deceased writer. We only know through his books, he is alive and he is calling out to us. Here I am, he says to you. On Easter, we celebrate the fact that the sun rose. On Easter, we celebrate the fact that our sin was defeated. On Easter, we celebrate the fact that salvation is available. On Easter, we celebrate that the Son went willingly to the cross, hung there in our place, was buried in the tomb that we deserve, triumphed over the sin that put him there that we might be forgiven from our own. That's the beauty of Easter. And then, as if that is not enough to celebrate, we celebrate the fact that because he is living and alive, he is present with us. And so we're still here in the quote-unquote vineyard. 
with the Son who lives and rules and reigns over his people. We want to end our Easter service this morning by taking communion. So if you're someone who volunteered to pass these trays out, would you come grab these? These trays are gonna make their way uh, around the room. You'll just take one of the cups. The cup is prepackaged, has both elements there, wafer and the juice. Easter is a celebratory morning. The communion meal is a celebratory meal. It reminds you that your sin is forgiven. Your debt has been paid. The son was slain. The savior rose. The death was defeated. That restoration is available. If you've received God's grace for the forgiveness of your sin by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you to take this meal with us, to be reminded that the son was sent, that the son was killed, but that the son did not stay dead. On Easter, followers of Jesus the world over celebrate. If that's you, we invite you to celebrate along with us. We invite you to celebrate that all the bad news has been swallowed up by the glory of the good news. That all of the reality of our sin has been swallowed up in the death and the resurrection of our Savior. All the bad news undone by the glory of the good news. So I want to invite you, top little piece of cellophane opens up the wafer, The bottom thicker piece opens up the juice. I want to invite you into a moment of celebration. It was the glory-stealing, heart-blind, death-inducing sin of humanity that sent the Son to the cross, where his body was broken and his blood was poured out. But when we take communion, we're celebrating a savior who is no longer broken in body and emptied of blood. When we take communion, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are celebrating a savior who is alive and living and reigning and interceding on our behalf and who really does love the people that he came to die for, amen? And so on Easter, we take communion Not just, amen. It took me a long time to process that. So on Easter, we take communion, not just to say our Savior died. On Easter, we take communion to celebrate the fact that our Savior rose. Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. Brothers and sisters, this is the blood of Christ. Drink in remembrance of him. I would be remiss this morning if I didn't make one last appeal. If Easter is an invitation to followers of Jesus to celebrate the death and resurrection of the Savior, it also provides an invitation for those who have not believed in Christ as their Savior to turn their eyes to him. Remember Jesus' words to the scribes and the elders and the chief priests and the Pharisees. If you stumble over the son, refusing to believe, 
you will be broken. And in your moment of judgment, you will be crushed by the just wrath of a holy God. But that does not have to be your fate. If you've not ever been saved, don't be shattered by the stone that others reject. You can stand upon it and live. You can see the sun in all of his beauty. You can recognize your sin in all of its ugliness and you can turn to him and you can be saved. There are undoubtedly some in here who came along maybe reluctantly, maybe willingly, but apathetically because this is what we do on Easter Sunday. We live in a part of the country, in a part of the world, where it's normal for us to at least go and do our due diligence at church. But let me warn you, doing your due diligence at church is going to do nothing for you when you stand before the Lord in your moment of judgment. The only thing that can save you is the son who was sent, was killed, and is not dead. In that moment, what you need is for the son to rise up on your behalf, declare you innocent, covering you in his righteousness, washing you clean in his blood so that you stand before a holy and a righteous God, not holding up your due diligence on Easter Sunday 2022, but instead clinging to the righteousness of the living son. You can step into that this morning. I want to offer you a few ways that you could do that. It's possible that you came with someone who has been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, in which case I would encourage you, have a conversation with them. Ask them what that's all about. Have them tell you how it is that they came to recognize the reality of their sin and the grace and the beauty of the Savior who was killed in their place. Have a conversation about what it looks like to step into relationship with Jesus. It might be that you want to have a conversation with someone on our pastoral staff. We'll be here. You can find us in the lobby after service. Some of us will be down here. We would love to have a conversation with you. It might be that you're not 100% sure that you're ready to step into that relationship today, but you would love to ask some questions, have a conversation maybe in an extended manner with someone. There's a little sticker on the seats in front of you with a QR code. Now, if you're unfamiliar with how a QR code works, you can just pull out your cell phone camera, train it on that sticker, and if you've got an iPhone, it'll show up in a little yellow box, and you can just click that yellow box, and it will take you to a landing page. On that landing page, there's an opportunity to connect with us if you're visiting with us and you want some more information about our church, but there's also a little box down at the bottom that says the gospel. We would invite you to click on that little box and you can send us an email and we'll follow up with you. We'd love to have a conversation with you about what it looks like to respond to the good news that the son was sent and was killed and that he is alive and what that could mean for you. And so that might be the right next step for you to take and we would love to have some conversation with you. Any one of those is a great next step if you're hearing this message this morning and something is stirring inside of your heart. Something that says, yeah, maybe I am glory stealing, heart blind, and dead. Maybe I do need a savior. We would love nothing more than to celebrate alongside you the good news that Jesus Christ died in your place and that he rose and triumphed over your sin. And so you can use any one of those methods to take a next step toward that this morning. 
If you would stand. We're going to enter into a time of singing. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, hopefully the opening of our service showed you that we like to sing around here. Uh, We're going to start with a song called God Really Loves Us. That is the good news of this parable. That in the big picture, God kept sending, not reluctantly, but he kept sending lovingly and willingly in order to save his people from their sin. Let me pray and then we'll close our service this morning in song. God, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that you sent the son, that he came willingly, that he died in our place, but that he is not dead. God, we praise you for the glory of the resurrection. We praise you for the good news of the gospel. We praise you for the life that we have because of the son. God, would this day be one of rejoicing for your people? Would it be one of introspection for those who have not been saved by your grace through faith in Jesus Christ? God, we want to give you the glory that is yours. Would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the Savior more clearly? God, would you help us to celebrate the life we have because he is not dead? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.